All right, welcome back, everybody. Wildlife Cake and Cocktails, episode 10, coming at you guys. Uh, we've got a great show for you guys today. Um, I'm very excited. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, mine, land rehabilitation, a very, very important issue. So, of course, we have to have our setup first. Um, because we're talking mining, we have some jewel mines. Uh, <laughs> not all of us, of course. Some of us are consummate professionals. Uh, the jewel mine, uh, two shots of whiskey, a three quarter shot of pomegranate liqueur, bitters, ice and tonic. Nice. Um, nice. Yes, quite lovely. Um, and you know, of course, we're talking uh, land rehabilitation, so we have some black forest cake. Um, it's a densely layered chocolate and cherry mayhem thing. And all vegan today as well for our uh, fantastic guests. Uh, and um, well I'm very, very excited about this one. Um, look. Over here to my left, my good buddy Adrian Carr from uh, Griffith, uh, Bachelor of Environmental Science graduate, uh, Diploma of, of Project Management, and currently working at Habitat Bush Reveg. That's all right, yep. How you doing, mate? Yeah, good, thank you. Thank you, thank you for, for coming us. up to talk um, Mindland Rehab with us. I've known you for ages, and um, you've always been one of my kind of go-to guys to talk about bush regen, you know? Um, you've yeah. al you always seem to have had a wealth of knowledge, so I'm, I'm very happy to have you here, man. Thank you for showing up. Thank you. Awesome. And... Uh, Oh, I'm very excited about this over here. Um, further to my left, we have Ms. Corinne Unger. Uh, she's done a Bachelor of Science, uh, majoring in Geomorphology and Climatology with a, uh, with a Diploma of Education as well. Yep, at the same time. Yep. Wonderful. A dual degree um, down in New South Wales. Uh, Postgrad Diploma in Geoscience in Applied Geomorphology. Uh, she spent uh, plenty of time uh, in and around the mining industry in a variety of roles from soil conservation to mine rehab. Um, 10 years or so in the Northern Territory in planning and research as yep, well. Yep, yep. Wonderful. Um, and then onto regulation within the Queensland government and abandoned mine rehab. Uh, a self-employed environmental consultant for nine years working in Australia and overseas. Man, you've done everything. Um, awarded the James Love Churchill Fellowship in 2009 to study abandoned mine rehab and post-mining land use in Austria, Germany, England, and Canada. Uh, also a former senior research officer at the uh, Center for Mine Land Research at the University of Queensland um, in early 2011. Um, helping uh, support research and implementation of Australia's national policy for uh, abandoned mines. Uh, Following a brief stint as an industry fellow there at the CMLR, she's now doing her PhD at UQ. Um, Corinne, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. After yeah. that massive long introduction, yes. thank yeah. you, thank you for well, being here. Um, <laughs> and yeah, look, um, I hear you've had a, a busy couple of days. You've just come from the University of Technology in Sydney. Yeah, last night. Last um, night, a, 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 an organisation called ATSE, ATSE for the Australian Academy for Technology and Engineering. Okay, and that was for this event that we've got right here, the uh, Resource yes. Futures. Yes, they, they, the University of Technology Sydney hosted it, and uh, within that institute, they are uh, yeah, proponents of the circular economy and you know gathering waste from uh, wealth from waste. So it's uh, they're really looking at um, energy as well as mining related. Um, sustainability practices right um, but ATSI produced a policy uh, position action statement and they are wanting to uh, promote Australia or want Australia to become a leader in the world in mine rehabilitation and closure and it explores all uh, some of the limitations that, that we are currently facing and some of the problems and particularly around reputation of the mining industry around mine rehab and closure right and how that's affecting the industry and wanting to um, bring in uh, explore opportunities for more, you know, technology, but better practices, and and ultimately to build trust in the mining sector and 
uh, and also to sell our expertise overseas. So it's sort of to um, promote it. Yeah, right. Look, quite a lot of challenges there ahead of them, but obviously they're looking for that circular, sustainable economy type of future for, for Australia's mining industry and all of our production industries as well. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it's, uh, waste is a, you know, a key issue yeah. associated with mining and um, and, and that uh, sustainable the Institute for Sustainable Futures looks at all types of ways, so they, they go beyond mining. Um, this ATSI uh, action statement is specifically focused on mining. Yeah, right. I did see some uh, some interesting stuff in there about technological waste and um, mm. and all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah, fascinating stuff. It was a it was a good meeting, obviously. Had, uh, yeah, so it was, we had a panel discussion. Right. And involved state and federal government and um, a couple of experts in the waste sector and um, contaminated land and how you know you can clean up and. Um, you know, increased value of land through cleanup processes and so on, and just looking at new technologies. So it's a really diverse group, and yeah, I can't say I'm fully across all of these issues, but I was there to represent the rehab and closure space, and because I've done some research on abandoned mines, I've yeah. got a bit of a handle on what's happening in Australia versus overseas. Right, and a lot of abandoned mines in Australia. So. Oh, we've got a lot, but that's not so meaningful. It's really about. Um, you know which ones are significant and right it's and really what about can be done with them. yeah and, and and are they being managed you know so it wouldn't matter so much if we had um really well coordinated programs that were systematically working through those sites but every state's doing its own thing so okay right yeah so some states are <clears throat> pulling together fairly organized programs and have a levy to fund it and so on and others don't so it's just a, a patchwork Right. Is there an intent to create a national way of um, monitoring? Um, yes, so that when they developed a national strategic framework in 2010 uh, under COAG, uh, that was, I thought, the intention to have some national implementation plan, but it just stopped in 2010. So the committee just disbanded and nothing happened. So it's, um, it's a challenge with state-based responsibilities when the federal government um, you know where and when and how should they get involved mm. and so abandoned mines clearly is you know a bucket full of challenges yeah <laughs> so yeah, yeah. the federal government doesn't really want to buy into that it's a state issue and they'd rather you know not put rather their hands not, on that hot no. potato okay mm. but at the same time uh, australia likes to uh, promote its its mining ability so the australian government gets engaged when they want to write like a series of leading practice booklets so they wrote a series of 14 booklets at the same time as they developed the strategic framework for abandoned mines. So those leading practice booklets looked at rehab closure, water management, um, you know, community engagements, a whole range of things. And by pulling out good case studies, you can tell a coherent story about what is good practice or leading practice. Right. But um, but the priority for Australia was really on on that rather than abandoned mines. But but at the same time. We ha just since then, there's been much more interest in abandoned mines and uh, and mining legacies generally. And a Senate inquiry was uh, commenced this year, so they're looking at mine rehabilitation to try and understand what what the Australian government's responsibilities are with respect to that, uh, particularly under the EPBC Act, right. 1999. So you know, does it relate to that, and you know, what is their role in it? And so yeah, do they have any liability to act? Kind of. Yeah. Well, hopefully, it pushes them for some action because. Uh... Yeah. So, so my that may head down a path where there's some national changes, but um, really, if you after studying abandoned mines, they fall into a regulatory black hole. They really don't belong anywhere. They sort of float about, right? And they can be ignored, or they can be fixed up, depending on. Uh, the will of a government or individuals. Sometimes you can have some really passionate individuals in a government department that, that powers ahead and gets a lot of support for it. But it's all 
um, sort of under the radar in a way that it's sitting outside of the normal regulatory process. Yeah, right. It, they just uh, they, they either occurred when there was no legislation or now that there's no owner, there's no way of regulating it. Right, the whole mine ownership and land ownership becomes yeah. quite, a, well, quite an issue. If you've got a mining lease, the um, Environmental Protection Act in Queensland has a mechanism for regulating that site. But if it's not active and there's no owner, then it actually defaults to the state or the private landowner, depending on its crown land or or freehold. Wow. And so that already gets complicated. Yeah, but but at that point, um, the EP Act doesn't address it. But the Mineral Resources Act has gives the power to the uh, Mines Department to go in and do work on abandoned mines, which yeah. they can do and they have done a lot of shaft capping in particular um, to keep areas safe, like Gympie or Charters Towers. Yeah. But um. Yeah, it just sits in the middle, and so the the safety factors might be the the focus, but the environmental aspects just get a, you know overlooked or yeah, right. they're undervalued. So it's very mm. um, complex in that once it falls into a regulatory no man's land, who's going to pull it out? You know, really, do governments want to pull it out of there yeah. and and say put it on their contaminated land register if it's got contaminated land because then they've got to fix it up. So. And I guess it's easier to just cap holes and, uh, than it is to actually restore a site and, and grow mature mm. trees and a, a proper ecosystem. Yeah, so that's that's one aspect of it. So if it's just disturbed land and you need to do revegetation, then you've got the usual challenges, particularly if there's no topsoil, and you might have um, acid materials or saline materials or just rocky materials, so just yeah. not good environment for mm. vegetation. But the other um, aspect which is harder to see is around contamination. So. On the one hand, it could just be the weathering of the rock that's been brought out during mining. Yeah. And it, it just weathers so rapidly that it yields, um, you know, acid mine drainage or, um, yeah, just low pH water, yeah. metal laden water, saline. Well, even water. here on the coast, there's a lot of sodic soils all over the place. Very yeah. So that's a different, um, similar geochemical process, but different context. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you get acid sulfate soils in coastal areas, but that's yeah. But it is the same. You're exposing minerals to oxygen, mm. and they rapidly weather and form sulfuric right. acid. Wow, that's um, yeah. that's fascinating. So obviously, I know very little about geomorphology. So yeah, well, well actually, yeah. so fill us in. Well, <laughs> geomorphology. That's yeah, really, that's yeah, really so just look, about um, landforms and how landforms weather. So I always explain it like a geologist deals with you know hard rock, you know the the rock in situ or um, yeah the rocks themselves. But geomorphology is how they weather and form landscapes. Right, so it's a bit so more of a dynamic process. Yeah, so around rivers and floodplains and you know how how cliffs may it's just the natural process of geomorphology is one part the bit that i spent a fair bit of time on was applied geomorphology okay so when we change the landscape how do we restore some sort of stability to it okay and geomorphology um, because those weathering processes occur in long time periods you know, over you know thousands of years um millions of years um you you're dealing with long uh, term processes so i guess when i went into mine rehabilitation Initially, I came from a soil conservation background, having worked uh, for the New South Wales government in soil conservation. So it was mainly to do with um, farmers, uh, national parks, um, roadworks in national parks, right. just stabilising the soil so that you didn't have the soil washing off into the river and um, filling dams, um, reducing water quality. Yeah, just changing hydrogeological just, patterns just, um, yeah. yeah, upsetting the balance in the local uh, river system, but also um, losing that valuable soil, which is so important for productivity. Right. So. Mm -hmm. I was working in southern New South Wales and um, with sheep grazing or, or other sorts of um, agricultural practices. And so if you've lost your topsoil, you lose your productivity. So there was a really strong focus on um, keeping the soil where it uh, belonged. 
and uh, also uh, the, where I first worked was in the catchment of Warragamba Dam so it was even though it was down near Goulburn it was just in the southern part of the Warragamba catchment and there was a subsidy for soil conservation works which helped uh, farmers to do the works and that was my first job okay, so yeah so from there um, then to the Northern Territory with um, uh, working in a mine yeah all right and um was there something that initially, uh, I always like to talk to about how people got involved, was it, yeah. you know, obviously for a lot of us wildlife people, there's some animal that we like to start chasing when we're young. Yep. Um, was there something, uh, you know, was there something about geology that got you, or, or earth sciences mm. that kind of triggered your interest when you were? It's interesting because in, when I was at school, I loved uh, science and I loved um, uh, geography. Fantastic. Uh, physical geography. Yeah. Yeah. So just, I don't know. You never know. You have fantastic teachers or you love it and so you do well and then your teachers love you. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, guess, I guess maybe you never got tired of looking at maps, very complicated Oh, maps. I love maps. There we go. <laughs> I used to I used to get in a bit of trouble with my coloured pencils because my, my peers used to think I was just sucking up. Oh, right. <laughs> but, uh, no, I used to love maps. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. All right. And, um, and so, you know, you came from a soil conservation background. Um, yeah, that was my first job. And was there um, some point specifically where you kind of went into mine rehab? Yes. I went on a holiday and I was up at Cape York, um, so I did this big road trip and on the way back I was doing my postgrad studies and I had to do an exam and I had to pick a town where I was going to do that exam on a particular date and I chose Weeper. And, um, oh, wonderful, beautiful place. Yeah, and, and the local reverend had to supervise my exam <laughs> and I was in the you know, bottom of his house and <clears throat> interestingly the subject matter applied geomorphology was, was looking at dunes and beaches and coastal processes so it's another aspects of uh, this is coastal geomorphology and um, we'd just been up through the desert and um, and up to Cape York and I was able to see the difference between tropical beaches and subtropical beaches and so on and I was starting to get it was like I was really living it so I was reading and studying and I just when I did the exam it was just Oh, I don't know, the best exam ever. I was chilled, but I'd been reading <laughs> yeah, and right. studied. I did really well in that subject, but I came back feeling like uh, mm, this is what i got to study. But, but also um, went on a mine tour at Weeper. And so that was pretty exciting. We, um, they, they had organised tours, and so it's a bauxite mine, so it's very shallow mining. Yep. It's a lot easier to get the revegetation going because the topsoil can be scraped off um, mm the bauxite removed and the topsoil put back and so it all happens in sequence it's um probably one of the easier mine types it doesn't mean it's all done well everywhere but if they get it right it can be done very well so we went on tour and um i just got really hooked on the whole process of how you bring life back to mined landscapes yeah right um mm. and this was at a time when they were experimenting with horticulture so they had tropical fruit trees growing so they had this massive like orchard jackfruit and breadfruit and you right. name it and I thought it was very peculiar but <laughs> at the same time it kind of got my interest yeah and right and they, they were growing all of those on the on the bauxite yeah on, on the rehab areas yeah, yeah. and uh, they were trying to build a market and a new business which I think was probably ahead of its time but also uh, difficult because yeah. of the distance to the markets and right. so I think in mm. the end that was what brought it undone but at least they were willing to try it yeah but I found all of that quite exciting just um the ability to you know, bring things back. That's very cool. But um, what do they do with the uh, stockpiled topsoil? Oh, that, so you, you put it aside until you need it or you move it on to a new area. So if you've got mining in sequence, so, so there's this pre-stripping. So you, before uh, mining, so if there's a bauxite uh, resource 
and you push the topsoil back and you start mining in a particular area uh, then you can bring the soil around and spread it over there but if as you go in sequence um, you may be able to strip the topsoil from there and put it straight oh, there okay. so the idea is if, if you don't um, it's, it's not a complete backfill in that the ground surface has yes. been lowered yeah. um, you do end up with like shallow pits or yeah. undulating pits depending on the nature of the resource that's been removed yeah. but um, direct scraping of topsoil and placement is best that's the ideal because it's fresh it's got all the living things in it well, yeah. it still has all the you know local microbes really that are there in the soil. Exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah and often a lot of seed which, yeah, which saves money on reveg costs mm. yeah, if right. it's done there's, well there's a massive seed bank in that soil yeah. from previous generations of plants that didn't germinate last season ready to go yeah and mm. it, that can be a negative thing if it's full of weeds but of it's course, good yeah, if it's right. good full of natives well, and yeah. mycorrhizal fungi as well so yeah fungi are really important and yeah, they've been found biota, to be yeah. increasingly important for mine rehab because you're often dealing with uh, materials that don't have soils and biology mm. living things in it right mm. so you've got to kind of restore the soil from the ground up before you can even yes think about the rest yep. of it yep you've got to start with um yeah. healthy soil yeah, but even below that, if you're working on another sort of mine, you've got waste rock, you've got to really understand the characteristics of that because some of those waste rocks types, if they've got the sulphide minerals, then they do need to be um, capped and okay. sealed. You don't want yeah. water or oxygen getting in. Things so leaching through into yeah. the natural so, ecosystem. And yeah, metalliferous mines are more often uh, posed with those challenges. So whether they've got a tailings dam, which is the ground up residue from mineral processing, or waste rock, which is the sub-economic ores, so it's hasn't got enough in there to go through the mill. Right. So you've, you've got these two lots of waste, the tailings, the residue, the mud goes to a dam often, and the waste rock is piled up into a like a new landform. Yeah. So really when it comes to rehabilitation, you're really faced with these two types of waste and also a pit of some sort, a final void. You know, is it going to be a lake? Are you going to backfill it? Are you going to reshape it? Are you going to partially backfill it? Are you going to do a bit of both where you're going to co-dispose some pits you can put tailings and waste rock together and form quite a dense um, mass of material right. and that's that's got advantages for strength and it's, you know it makes it stable but anyway there's a whole mm. lot of um, yeah a lot of different methods different huh? ways and different solutions for each waste yeah right wow so that's um that's a lot of different challenges i, I guess that is a very challenging and interesting field to go into um mm. And uh, how long were you in it um, before you got the uh, the fellowship? In, um... So I moved. So after the Cape York trip, and I, well, I just applied for the first mining job I saw, and it happened to be at Ranger Uranium Mine in the Northern Territory. So I um, I got that, um, which was a big change from going from Cooma, where it was freezing cold, up to the tropics. Yeah. <laughs> Lovely uh, area. Yeah, but I'd sort of been hooked on the tropics after the trip to Cape York, so. And living in Jabiru in Kakadu was just wonderful. And um, had 10 years there. And then I had about seven years with the Queensland Government at Rockhampton before moving to Brisbane. And then I applied for Churchill Fellowship after that. So I'd been managing abandoned mines in Queensland by the time I applied uh, for the Churchill Fellowship because I was at that point where I said, right, well, we know what we're doing here at this one site, but as a state. Oh, and other sites were, you know, some of them had some activity happening but I was concerned about the stop-start nature of how we were managing abandoned mines and I thought how do countries overseas deal with this how do they follow through how do they develop the programs how do they resource them so there's continuity you know before that I didn't hadn't really fully appreciated the regulatory absence around it in Australia so 
that was something I learned about, but also accounting for liabilities. And we don't account for the liabilities here, whereas overseas in Canada they do. And so there were things like that that I learned. Uh, so it wasn't the grassroots stuff. It wasn't sort of how they revegetated. It was with their water treatment plants. Some of them had uh, public-private partnerships to fund water treatment plants in Canada. In British Columbia, they had one at an old um, metal mine, Britannia mine, near the, near the harbour. So they... <coughs> How they funded them and how they ran them and how they... Kind of on an economic scale. Yeah, it was sort of, it's a very cross-disciplinary. And so clearly I'm not an expert in all those fields, but I was trying to look at how governments um, led, how they really were proactive, how they responded, you know, how audits were undertaken. The Auditor General would undertake an audit and say, you've got to do this. And suddenly programs were transformed. And what did and because I could read the auditor's report for um, British Columbia Crown Contaminated Sites Program as an example, and I'd read it and I go, oh, there are all the problems we've got here, you know. Um, and they resolved them eventually, or some did. of them. Yeah, no, they did. They they immediately, like within twelve months, made some of the changes, which then led to all the other changes being implemented. Yeah, well, yeah. So some pretty important lessons there. Yeah. That we could take. yeah. So that's fascinating. You went to Austria, Germany, England, and Canada to. Um, learn about how they're, um, you know, managing their challenges in mine rehab. Obviously, they probably have some pretty different um, issues um, in such densely populated regions of the world, particularly yes. compared to Australia. Yes, but also I should point out I was looking at different programs as well as um, and different scales. So I did look at some local projects, but also some regional scale projects. So in East Germany, after reunification of Germany. Um, when the West basically took over East Germany, you had a whole region of mines abandoned. So these mines were operating um, without care for the environment, so they were operated very cheaply. But as soon as they become part of the unified Germany, they had to raise the standards. Right. And so that's why they were uneconomic. So whole towns disappeared. Whole, it was major you know, social disruption but because of those political changes. But <coughs> at the same time, it was... Um, an opportunity for really the expertise of the West to be applied in, in these degraded landscapes. So, for example, the old brown coal mining area of East Germany, um, which is south of Berlin and north of Leipzig, in that close to the Polish border. Leipzig still has some pretty big uh, lignite mining. Uh, the, the big, there are a few there, but the main lignite mines in Germany are more towards Cologne, so oh, in the West. Right, course, yeah. but, but this, this area still does have some, but something like 80% closed in that time. So these, they're left with all these pits and no communities, so, or virtually no communities. Yeah. Significant socioeconomic impact as well as environmental. So they initiated um, two significant projects. One was had a landscape architecture um, focus on how we're going to make this beautiful again, this ugly landscape, how are we going to make it beautiful, but also how are we going to bring people back? Yeah. So how are we going to provide employment? Mm. And then the other group, which they probably, from a, the outside, you don't see as much of, but fundamentally important for making sure that the pits were stable as they um, restored them back into pit lakes. So they've, de they've developed a series of pit lakes. Um, and because they're sort of soft sediments, those sides could collapse in. There was a, this engineering group uh, which was established to manage the filling of the pits and also the water treatment because the water was acid as well. Right. So they had to lime, dose it and uh, treat it as it filled so that the, the objectives of the project to have recreation lakes, um, have people using these lakes and interacting and having foreshores developed to make it you know, easily yeah. accessible, um, having canals to connect 
um, different lakes so people can take their boat from one to the other. Wow. And lookouts and bike trails and rollerblading paths and you name it, and they reinstated that and, and then built, a, you know, motels, hotels, and then started selling off the land around the foreshores. So then they were starting to mm. recoup the cost. So it wow. started as a massive liability and it ends up as a massive um, asset. Mm, and fantastic. this is and this is really something you've got to have a long-term plan about. Yeah. And but knowing that they've done it, we what, can learn from that. Were you seeing kind of the uh, tail end of that process? Uh, I saw it ten years into the um, so EBSC was the name of the landscape architect project, and the LMBV was the acronym for the engineering company. Um, and so this landscape architect project was ten years, and they were celebrating the ten years with a conference, and that was a conference that I went fantastic. to in two thousand nine. So it only started in you know only 10 years prior, so it, it took an, a number of years for them, I guess, to conceive what they were going to do with that land, that area, and then once they started it, then they had distinct programs with um, with predetermined endpoints, like I said, this is what we've got to achieve, and that's when they, they engaged universities, uh, Cottbus University, which is not far away, were very active in the landscape architecture area. So it had a really high um, intellectual component, as well as... Um, you know the nuts and bolts of the work and engineering and science so there's a lot of a lot of money invested but they knew that once they brought that region back it would be of a socio-economic benefit for yeah. the whole country that's fascinating yeah. uh, especially the thing about the um the sides of the uh the pits you know like mm. it's it's not a lake that's formed by natural hydrogeological processes so it's a lot steeper it doesn't have as much i guess vegetation and riparian stuff mm, stopping no, erosion nothing, nothing. so it's just ready to they were all dry pits, you know, yeah. until then, because they were actively dewatering. And fairly tonight. steeply cut yep. as well. So, yep. and, yeah, and in soft sediments, which they didn't exactly know how they'd behave as they started to fill with water. Right. So, and they did have major failures um, before they realised exactly what was going on. So yeah. there was a lot of um, information gathering, but um, we've learned a lot from them as well because individuals have come and presented at conferences, and, and so we can learn from that. Fascinating. Very hmm. interesting. Um, all right, I guess we should uh, talk a bit about uh, global uh, uh, mining and global land use um, around the world. Um, according to uh, the Yale School of Forestry and uh, Environmental Studies, um, mining activities are the planet's third biggest cause of deforestation. Uh, just a quote here, oil, gas and mineral extraction account for an estimated 7% of global deforestation in the subtropics, with increasing exploration and development taking place. Uh, in uh, more affluent countries, oil, gas, coal and mineral developments continue to degrade and pose threats to forests such as in the Canadian Boreal and the Russian Taiga, where oil transportation and infrastructure is being planned and developed. Um, so obviously that's a lot of impacts on wildlife that's going to be potentially happening from all of this stuff. Um, habitat destruction, changes in hydrogeology. Um, you are mentioning a lot about the, um, I guess, contamination, toxic contamination effects, which mm. um, can be there, and, you know, natural uh, issues with climate change. Um, I guess as, uh, as far as I understand it, there's three main strategies that are kind of uh, employed to mitigate the mining impacts of biodiversity. So prior, you're taking some strategic assessments to uh, kind of look at the impact caused by regional developments. Um, Offsets, uh, you know, during um, and, uh, you know, of course, supporting regional conservation activities and then the rehabilitation during closure, um, aiming for self-sustaining ecosystems that interact positively with the surrounding landscape. Um, is that about right? Hmm. Yeah? Yeah, so on the biodiversity, because I am a geomorphologist, yeah. I, don't, I don't consider myself, a, you know, an ecologist or yeah, a, of course. an expert in those areas, but... Um, 
what, as you're reading that, I was just thinking about the relatively um, small footprint of mining compared with um, grazing and other areas. That doesn't, that doesn't yeah. mean that there's not a lot of impact in that space. It's just sort of, I was just trying to, um, I, and I, I don't know much about those uh, global figures and I'm, and I know less about the um, It did seem quite high here. to me. Yeah, I, mm. I do know that um, you know, uh, you know, agricultural deforestation is probably the main, the main cause mm. of, um, and, and you know, here in, in Queensland, you know, we're going to be losing, what, a million hectares of planned for clearing next year. Mm. Uh, and the majority, of very little of that is actually, uh, you know, through um, mining and resources. Uh, the majority is through agriculture. Um, I guess um, that makes me think, what is, in your opinion, is uh, the priority sites for a rehabilitation? You mean from active mines or abandoned mines? Well, or, both, or everything? really. Like, yeah. Yeah. So I, I actually see water as being um, at the heart of it. Uh, I see land rehabilitation as absolutely fundamentally important, but if you don't get the geochemistry aspects mm. right, you can't do that. So I think um, that understanding of geochemistry, what's going on in the landscape, you've got to stabilise it, contain it, do something with that to make it stable before you revegetate. So more often than not, I see that as the major obstacle. Um, so there was a, an interesting study by uh, David Lawrence at the University of New South Wales it was about 10 years ago and he studied 800 mine closures in Australia over two decades and he found that 75% um, of mines closed earlier than planned. So 25% were going through their resource and finishing the resource as they'd planned and the rest were stopping prematurely mm -hmm. and he looked at the reasons why. So whether there was like a safety incident or flooding underground or, or even an underground operation that had come to an end which then made the open cut operation unviable whatever it was there was a whole series of environmental incidents could have been extreme weather events filled up pits with water they couldn't you know yeah. it then made it unviable whatever but the important thing about that information was really that it's actually less likely that you'll go to plan than you'll go to plan <laughs> so yeah. the mining operation so that was the thing that struck me that you often see mines saying, oh, we weren't quite ready to close, so we haven't got the closure plan, or we didn't think this would happen, or we, or we were setting aside these wastes or those soils to cover this, and now we can't get at that because we we're not going to keep mining mm -hmm. in that area. So understanding right from the outset that the characteristics of the waste is as important as understanding the resource, and right. this is mm. something that hasn't been well appreciated in legislation or or in practice until perhaps the 90s, um, getting into the 2000s, but even then not consistent, uh, you know, across all jurisdictions. So, but most big mining companies understand it and know that this has to be done, but, but it's really, I hear often from geochemists, just not enough samples taken early on about the waste so you understand the waste, right. because that's what's going to stay there forever. The ore's going. So from an environmental perspective, uh, from a rehab perspective, the waste, you've got to understand the characteristics. And if you know that really well from the start, you can place them in much better places. So if you put the really highly um, uh, reactive waste in a, a particular repository and then encapsulate it with the less reactive or even neutralising materials, then you can build up a dump that's much more stable. Yeah, right. So these are the challenges of um, keeping, making sure our water resources aren't impacted. Yeah, and I suppose if they know what those things are, then they can plan for contingencies if something does go wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. if it's really well characterised, then you can adapt it along the way. And, yeah. and you can always do more sampling as you go along, but the actual mine design from the start 
uh, getting that right. And it is typical for mines to start with a plan and then extend and add on and mm. because the, that's just, yeah, you've got to get the capital, get started, bring the income and then extend the mine and so on. So they'll often go ahead in stages, just like tailings dams will go up in lifts. You'll start with a dam, be depositing in there and then put in another lift and another lift and that, right. that adapts that structure for the life of the project mm. but there's a lot of talk now uh, particularly just last week UNEP uh, the United Nations Environment Program brought out a, a document about tailings themselves saying we've got to get away from um, having tailing stamps that can fail so after Samarco in um, South America uh, where you know high um, high moisture content tailings just flow down the river in yeah, the tailings right. structure when the dam failed uh, it, there's a number of examples of, of how this occurs, but really they they were pushing for you know zero uh, deaths. So we just don't want they want 100% safety. So I mean yeah. that's always hard to achieve, but that's what their goal was in this paper by describing how tailings dams are built, what are the problems and the flaws, and how do these failures occur. Yeah. So you know one of the key things is is thickening the tailings so that they're so thick and strong they just can't flow. So you just yeah, extract right. that water. So it costs more, but if you do it during the life of an operation, then you don't have this huge risk yeah um, similarly it's easier to rehabilitate at the end <clears throat> so one of the hardest things I think if you're looking at closing uh, looking at a mine from a closure perspective from the start you'd be designing all these things in yeah okay. but it means bringing forward some of that expenditure that you're otherwise thinking you don't need to spend till the end yeah into resource uh, into researching and planning mm. the waste yeah and planning it and depositing it well um, and building a very stable uh, containment facility right from the start right and and i think that's where we could do a lot more research around uh, the value of that because one of the fundamental challenges with um, how we model um, financial aspects of mines is the discounted cash flow which means that any expenditure in the future is diminished in that process right. so you could have a hundred million dollar you know liability for closure put it away there in the future but it's only maybe you know 20 million now if you know what i mean in, in an accounting mm. sense so discounted cash flow encourages us to downplay those risks at closure if that's how it's been um, assigned if those ex costs and, uh, mm -hmm. and those liabilities have been put to the end of the operation but if you bring it to the present and actually embed it in design the whole idea is that you don't actually have that liability then but it, yeah. but it works against the um the, the principles of of uh, net present value of money right. so this that's just one aspect that's been highlighted along the way it's not encouraging progressive rehab so the other thing is we've finished a, an area of waste dump you know each year in stages so it's a coal mine and there's a spoil pile they can shape it up and revegetate it and move it along um, but the incentive to do that work is not there when they can defer expenditure and put it off and put mm, it off. And yeah. So this is where Queensland Treasury have now become involved in the looking at the financial assurance system and the incentives for rehab and wanting to encourage better progressive rehabilitation mm. of mines because a lot of mines are deferring the rehabilitation and that was picked up by uh, Lock the Gate in one of their reports on mine rehabilitation and... Um, also, the Auditor General did an audit in 2014 that said some of these environmental issues aren't being addressed well. So, well, it's interesting if they can, um, you know, just a little bit of, um, I guess, a little bit more expenditure at the start can really uh, decrease some of those impacts. I mean, um, mm. that'd be right fantastic. Expertise. I mean, yeah. I mean you know, there is a growing demand for minerals and a higher, higher mineral prices, but at the same time, there's that downturn in fossil fuels that's currently going on. I just uh, 
I guess I wonder if we're going to be seeing an increase or decrease in uh, overall mining impact with uh, as those things uh, hopefully you know applied. You know. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I know there's a big push for really deep mining that you know you have less disturbance at the surface. So if you have, and I think that the really really deep mining. So we did, we already have underground mining, but what they're talking about, I not being a mining engineer, I'm not familiar with it, but um, it's it's about extracting resources with very little footprint of disturbance. Right. getting so far below them into yeah. the mantle that you know. Well, I don't know. <laughs> but also getting minerals that have been previously inaccessible by, yeah. you know, mm. open cut measures or underground measures that we, you know, currently do with the, the distance that we go down right. now with the equipment that we've got. So it's probably about new technology. And That's interesting that, you know, if yeah. you go deeper, you maybe do less damage rather than um, mm. staying and messing around in some of these uh, open cut pits and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Well, it's subsidence clear. is an issue, but um, yeah, I guess you can backfill a lot of that stuff too. Oh, well, no. Well, subsidence is a very serious issue. Um, and there again, New South Wales has got a subsidence board, or they, they used to have one. I'm not sure if it still exists, but the idea, um, particularly around Newcastle Hunter Valley, was to have an independent agency. Um, I think there was a levy paid by the companies, and then the Mine Subsidence Board would... Um, a, a deal with complaints. So if someone said, oh, we've got a crack in our house or whatever, they'd investigate it. And so based on engineering and science, they would determine, yes, that's related to that mine or whatever. Yeah. And um, and they would fund the repairs of the house uh, or the highway, you know, the main highway going north. If it had a crack or somewhere near Newcastle, they would fix it. So these that, that situation is quite unique in Australia. You would think mm. that everyone would have one because it makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so Queensland doesn't, and um, so we have problems at Ipswich and, you know... Um, With subsidence. Collingwood to, Park um, in particular. Yeah. Collingwood Park is uh, it's quite... It's been described in, in an, an audit report that they did in 2012 here in Queensland when the LNP government came in. They did a commission of audit to look at all the liabilities and assets and things. So in there they mentioned Collingwood Park specifically as well as the other abandoned mines in Queensland and estimated the total, total liability as being a billion dollars. And um, the Collingwood Park was in its own little category because it's in suburban areas, in perhaps more high value land because it's in urban areas and also with greater safety risk. Um, I think they relocated people in that area, but whole houses were sinking into the ground. So I think it was quite close to wow, the surface. And, and that's Collingwood Park, that's what, half an hour drive from here? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm not familiar with it in, in a lot of detail, but I know that that's where subsidence has its greatest impacts. And I think there was a lot of drilling that went into the freeway and the upgrade to make sure that there was... Because the area's got a lot of mines in it. Yeah. So um, the records aren't all that great. Um, you know, it's a, it's a real important lesson for uh, the value of keeping good records. So governments have to keep those records. Like, no one else is going to keep them. So governments have to prioritise the keeping of all these records of where mines have been and... Right what they've been doing there and what are the activities because in the future um, some areas that are in the middle of nowhere now might have a town on them. Yeah, right. So we've really got to um, be much better at keeping, 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 track keeping records, three-dimensional well, GIS. interesting what you were saying about um, Germany and how they, um, you know, that there were entire towns abandoned. Mm. I mean, with, with a lot less land to work with, there'd probably be um, more need to uh, rehabilitate simply because you've, you've got to put people somewhere. Uh, do you find that uh, mines closer to urban areas receive more attention here mm. in Australia? Yeah, I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. Um, certainly when it comes to abandoned mines, yeah. 
uh, in the floods inquiry, they looked at uh, Mount Oxide, which is up north of Mount Isa. Um, like they didn't actually visit the site, but they had a uh, a witness come forward with a statement about um, acid mine drainage from that mine, and the water's bright blue um, coming from this acid mine drainage, and it was affecting their creek and the cattle uh, that couldn't drink the water for a while. But anyway, and it dries out. It's an um, intermittent um, creek, but um. It's, it is a, it's, it's, there's been virtually no activity in terms of um, rehabilitation of that site because it's got an expiration lease on it, so the, another company may develop it. So there's always this tension between governments wanting to um, make Pass sure that, on. yeah, wanting, well, wanting another mine to come and solve all the problems. Yeah, you know? right. So if you mine it, then we don't have to worry about it. Yeah. But, but in doing so, the company has to weigh up these existing liabilities with the future value and what they want to take on or not. And so there is some legislation overseas. There's the Good Samaritan legislation, which helps to um, separate out liabilities from historic and present. So it does enable some new mines to start in areas that were mined before without the new owner inheriting all of the liability. So if in that process of trying to bring value back to some of these lands and, and provide more employment, then we'll, there will be examples where you need to, the government will need to say, right, you're not responsible for that, you're only responsible for that. And they've got to carve up those, those liabilities. Right. Because a lot of those liabilities occurred before, before there was legislation. Like, it's no one to point the finger at. Yeah. Um, it's different now, you know, if someone abandons a mine now or even... Um, well, if you keep good records, it on, is. Yeah, on, on, <laughs> or on sells it, you know, for a dollar or something, which we saw a little bit of a few yeah. years back. Or perhaps more recently than that. Um, just changing hands for not very much money. It did, no, just raises a lot of questions about yeah. liability. Mm, mm. That's interesting. Political will and funding seems to be the two main challenges that pop up again and again. How have you seen that change over the time that mm. you've been working on it? So I think, I think public awareness um, of the issue is the key change. Um, because it's like for a very long time the relationship between governments and industry to develop the resources has been a fairly closed one. And I think as time's gone on the communities want to have a greater say. Mm in those resources, not only in approvals for where the mine's going to go and how they're going to mine and dust and all those activity, activities that impact uh, or affect communities while they're mining. Uh, but now part of that discussion is more about rehab and closure, how are you going to leave it? Mm. And it's just taken us a while, I think, for that end point um, as a society, I think, for that end point to become real yeah right so you know when you start a mine it's, oh it's a long way off right, yeah. worry about that uh, and, and the communities too they're happy to have the jobs there mm. they can see the benefits they might have got a, another town doctor or new shops opened up or, or they've got these extra facilities but at a regional scale uh, the governments have to also manage the downturn and the redeployment the um the loss of employment uh transition to new land uses it could be transitioning from a mining operation to another business on that yeah. parcel of land but the legislation really is lagging well behind it really still just deals with um well i'll say weeds and seeds but it does sort of sound a bit insulting to the reveg <laughs> side of the job but if that's all they're addressing they they're not going quite far enough because yes that's that you've got to sort that out make sure it's stable non-polluting and safe but then you've got to look at the values. What value is that parcel Absolutely, of land yeah. to someone? So Musselbrook Council is an example in um, the Hunter Valley, the Upper Hunter, where the council wants to have a much greater say about 
the land use. They also wanted to get access. There was a conference down there in March this year that I went to. And it was very interesting because the mayor, uh, Martin Rush, was talking about how he'd love to get access to the buffer lands on the mines. So the mines can have a big parcel of land, but they mainly need that much to mine. But they have buffer lands to make sure that no one sort of, I guess, necessarily builds too close and then ends up being impacted by dust or noise and it becomes a problem. So you do need these buffers. But um, the council were were basically saying that within their shire they had half of the area's national park and a quarter was mining and they only had the other quarter to work with in terms of building any new industry or, or employment opportunities so they were wanting to have access to some of these buffer lands and just have more of a say there yeah, right. so this is really an example where local government doesn't have much of a say about mines um, where they go how long they go you know what how they leave their site but they're wanting to have a say because they are, in that case, surrounded by mines. Yeah. So I think three coal mines on all sides and, mm. you know, in the distance from the... Yeah. You can see them in town. But um, so I actually think what's shifting is public awareness um, and perhaps public proximity in mm. some cases where there's more people. Hunter Valley certainly has got a lot more activity um, and, and you hear a lot more about it because there's... You know, people from Sydney going up to the wineries, there's, there's horse breeding. and Yeah, and so thorough... you do get to see those impacts yeah. as well on the and way And the through. thoroughbred breeders are well equipped and they've, they've been fighting cases in court. So they're, they're resourced, so they're a very active group. But you look in Queensland, the Bowen Basin or Galilee Basin or even um, yeah, Surratt or Ipswich Basin. So yeah, there's not it's, exactly it's a, bit a lot quieter. of communities out there to find No, that. but there's still, there's still there's still interaction. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so I don't know what... Um, yeah, that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fascinating stuff. Look, um, I, I, I do want to uh, maybe kind of uh, walk the audience through just uh, the basics of mine rehab mm. while we got you here. Um, you know, I've, I've been through a few in my time in, you know, in fauna management and this kind of stuff. I've seen some pretty big coal mines and stuff. And uh, I've seen some that, uh, you know, there's some already some pretty big areas set off for rehab that they're getting to work on. But the scale of things is... is Pretty massive once you're actually on the ground. Um, so, look, could you walk us through, like, let's say an open cut coal mine producing like five to ten million tons of coal per annum for twenty years? Um, where do you start with rehabilitating that? Mm. If, if that's being closed after twenty years, they've got basically no more resources in the ground. Yeah. So normally with the coal mines, they they'd be um, they'd be building the spoil piles to to so parallel to the the open cut part of it sort of placing it behind and then sort of going across the landscape moving you know? along so, yeah yeah but then you'll end up with so large rectangular or um shaped void at the end that's going to be a pit lake right so that um casting of the the spoil behind enables like if it's left unshaped you end up with this zigzaggy type topography this um parallel piles uh, from the drag line so the drag right. line operations so that all gets recontoured so and stabilized it is room. possible to see if you look at aerial photography or the satellite imagery to um to see in some cases where they've been doing it systematically that those older ones have been smoothed off and shaped and you might have a you know water bodies built into them and drainage systems and so on and then as you get closer to the mine you get back to the sort of the raw spoil pile so you have this transition like when i see that i always think oh it's a nicely planned mine you know you can see right, it happening okay and then sometimes you can see the whole shebang and nothing's happening. Yeah, <laughs> okay. What's going on there? Yeah, they haven't even started. No. Yeah. And, um, and one of the reasons was that a lot of the mines, um, I shouldn't say a lot, maybe 10, uh, 
around eight to ten anyway, were covered by special agreement acts. They had their own legislation, and this I think goes back to the Bajelki Peterson era, right? Where the push was on getting mines started and having employment and just go ahead and do it, but don't worry about the rehab. Yeah. Now, I don't think that was the wisest decision <laughs> I think to be made agree because a lot of, as I say, those mo- really important decisions made early make a big difference mm. later on, mm. particularly around topsoil. So if all the topsoil got buried and you've just got this spoil that's sodic or dispersible and um, pretty much barren and inhospitable, then you've got a much harder job to rehabilitate. Right. So in the last... Um, I can't even think when it was, maybe 10 years ago, uh, roughly, they started to transition those mines across to a modern environmental authority. So to get rid of the State Agreement Act, uh, Special Agreement Act uh, that they had. Right. And they've done that now. But if you look at those mines, um, I think Collinsville was one, maybe Calide. Uh, um, yeah, I can't remember now, but they're online. You can look them up. But uh, And even Weeper, I think, was one. So there's... and and Mount Isa and a few other. Anyway, they had special agreement acts which enabled them to be exempt. Right. And so in the process of transitioning across, that's when I think a lot of the challenges are being realised. Oh, that's hard. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you've got your waste dumps. Oh, yeah. So the waste dumps, if they're going along. So you also got river diversions. Yeah. So these big box cuts sort of cut across the landscape in a way that... It's changed the hydrogeology. Yeah, you might have rivers that were going like that, and now you have to steer them around um, quite often permanently. Wow. So there's, um, there's been a lot of research on them, but the challenge with, um, with river diversions is that uh, it's very hard to create um, a natural river shape so so a lot of uh, fluvial geomorphology getting into another area geomorphology right and um riparian veg and all that reinstatement so trying to create natural and sometimes i think the early ones probably just look like engineered channels and Mm. as time's gone on they've probably put a bit more effort into making them more natural but um that is uh an area where uh, acarp research comes in so there's a coal levy and that funds research under acarp which is the coal association research program so that's been um probably a good thing for the coal sector for um, Australia whereas other mining uh, industries don't have that same setup. Right. It's probably quite sensible to have a levy and a research body and then have uh, industry people on those committees saying this is what we want studied. So it's where four or five mining companies um, or less say we want to study that. It's doing it together instead of all having to do it separately so Mm. that the principles from that can be applied more widely. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So look, on top of that, you've got your um, yeah. you've got your uh, open pit, basically. Yeah. So and tailings dams as well that still need to be dealt with. Yeah. Is so that... so for coal mines, um, they call washery wastes rather than tailings because they wash the coal to get soil and other stuff out of them. So right. you end up with these. Tailings is more for other minerals. T- well, tailings is um, involves grinding. Okay. So you've ground up your ore your and you've ore separated and, yeah. out the ore from the waste and that slurry. It's like a mud, but. Washery waste is like a mud, but you can have coarse and fine, and with the coarse waste, sometimes they're put in a different dump to the fines, um, and they're quite difficult to rehabilitate because of their water content. You know, they're going to drain for a long time, and they're uns- you know, not very strong, so if you want to cover them, it's very hard to get doses on them. Right. And so co-disposal is, um, is recommended in a lot of uh, geotechnical engineering sort of 
space, they recommend co-disposal. So you get the fines of the cores and you get a much more dense mass. Right. So it's kind of like marbles and sand yeah, and okay. clay, you know. So once Rather than just a it. slurry sitting there trying to evaporate. Yeah, and it just doesn't, um, they're just sloppy yeah, and, um, okay. and hard to, to cover. And then they'll just sort of drain slowly over time. So you have this less than ideal water coming up, maybe saline right. water. And, um, and then the coarse material, unable to do much with that either. So if they're going back into a pit, I think of it, uh, Tarong coal, they'll put them back in a pit. You can put them in together and it maximise the density. Okay. So if you have to build a dam to put this stuff in, you want high density because it costs money to, to raise it. Your dam's up, um, so the denser the material, the better. Sure. So there is a real, that's again, that forward planning for closure should be encouraging that getting those wastes as dense as possible and yeah. stable physically and excluding you know oxygen and water and in right. the end having to cap and cover and grow stuff on, and then revegetate. Yeah, eventually. And ha have you? How long does something that like that take to achieve? Have you seen a lot of successful um, mine rehabs with actual vegetation and um, yeah, ecosystem? I have seen yes, um, but but patches. Like, yeah. And um, uh, and and areas where they've tried to connect um, with with remnant yeah. vegetation through. Right, I mean, it corridor. does take a long time for those things to grow back. I mean, even well, even brigolo, which grows back pretty quickly, it's like thirty years until maturity. Yeah, I think. So, um, yeah, you're, well, the biggest challenge I think is if they don't start early, then they can't prove they can do it, and yeah. that's really the challenge. Mm. So, unless mining companies start early, get it established, and then have that sequence where you can see the old to the young. Right. And you can look at it like I still think back to like Gove in the Northern Territory, which was bauxite. But you could, as you flew in or flew out, you'd just see this beautiful transition from the really mature 30-plus years old rehab, which you couldn't tell uh, was rehab. It was done mm -hmm. so well. Because it was the same guy who was there for 35 years. Like it, that was, That's one of the other challenges with rehab is getting that, that lo and the yeah. local knowledge and knowing your soil, knowing your mm -hmm. material, knowing, and having a degree of control over the mine department. And so he, he did have that degree of control. Like he'd say, no, get that topsoil out there now or yeah, whatever it is. So he was, he was um, yeah, a German agricultural scientist, Dieter Hinz, and he, he did all this great stuff. No worries, that's fantastic. Um, is it, um, I guess I want to know how much incentive is there for mining companies to do that these days, to really... So, um, so there's the reputation, which is a kind of a, a less tangible aspect. Uh, the legislative one is probably the legislative one. Mm. Is, so financial assurance uh, is one aspect. I always see it as being multifaceted. It's not just one solution. Yeah. And when you read the literature on it, it does seem like there's um, a number of factors. But the economists would argue that you need the economic drivers for it to happen, and and it makes a lot of sense uh, that it has to be the right balance for the. Um, the decision makers yeah. Yeah, to say we're going to do this work this year um, yeah. because there is that incentive. So then that, that comes back to your financial assurance or your bond or every state calls it something different. But the way the government sets aside funding for that site to be rehabilitated um, mm. should it close prematurely. Um, it's important to note that quite often legislation addresses rehabilitation the vegetation aspects but maybe not all aspects of closure. So there's a um, that might have a nominal amount for decommissioning or whatever, but sometimes there are a lot of gaps in there anyway. So if a mine does close prematurely, there often isn't a closure plan. There right. may not be a closure plan. Mm. Some may have one, but that that, that's a challenge in itself. You know, if you don't have the plan already done and you haven't no. done all the studies, you've got to stop for you know three, five years, whatever, to do all those studies and then do the work. So 
sometimes that's not factored into the financial assurance. So that is the system. They have a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet, the government issues. It's on their website, um, the Department of Environment and Heritage Protection. That spreadsheet is issued, or a series of sheets. Uh, you can click on it and say you're a coal mine or metalliferous mine or whatever, and it'll take you to specific um, prompts and then companies fill it out to work out their financial assurance. I think they're allowed to use their own calculator tool under certain circumstances, but I'm not sure about that now because um, it's different in each jurisdiction. Yeah, of course. But, um, <laughs> state yeah. by state. Yeah, so that brings them up with a, a number and then that's the amount they need to get a bank guarantee for. And that um, the purpose of that guarantee is that if the company goes into liquidation that the government can access those funds that they are sort of quarantined yeah. and they can get them and then do the work. Okay. Fascinating. Look, we've got so much more that we could talk about on this. We, we haven't even reached um, uh, abandoned mines and uh, oh, rehab yeah. prospects, but uh, uh, I, think, I think we're going to have to have a, we're gonna have to have a little break sure. and then get on to our new research segment. Um, okay. Guys, we'll be back very shortly and we'll be talking new research in just a minute. Okay, welcome back. We're on to our uh, new research segment here. Um, normally we kind of uh, split it up uh, a little bit between uh, local and then international, but this is kind of just gonna go all over the shop. Um, see how much time we have left on the clock, not too much. Um, let's get straight into it. Um, so starting with Hearth et al, 2017. Whole organism concentration ratios in wildlife inhabiting Australian uranium mining environments from the Journal of Environmental Radioactivity. Um, available online 27th of April. So basically, um, in the natural process of an environmental impact assessment for uh, naturally occurring radioactive mineral mining, for example, uranium, uh, companies need to evaluate wildlife radiation doses. Uh, this is done um, generally measuring whole organism concentration radios, uh, uh, radios, ratios, um, a value called CRWO media, which relates radionuclide activity concentrations of the whole organism to its environment. So that's whole organism, WO, to uh, environment, media. Uh, these are collated at the International Atomic Agency's uh, Wildlife Transfer Database um, at wildlifetransferdatabase.org. Um, Pre-2013, not a lot of Australian records, um, a lot of underrepresented categories, um, for example, reptiles, and a focus on uh, tissue uh, uranium counts for in meats and things for human consumption, um, which is then upscaled to you know the whole organism. Um, so look, the aim for the authors here was to develop a comprehensive data set of uh, CRWO media, that's uh, the transfer ratios, uh, values for wildlife in Australian uranium mining environments in arid and uh, tropical areas. Uh, they wanted to test the difference between Australian and non-Australian, that's uh, you know, I guess temperate dominated data within the wildlife transfer database, um, and improve the completeness of existing uh, wildlife transfer data categories and identify some gaps. Um, so, on to methods. Um, they collected uh, these uh, values for CRWO media um, from uh, mining operations, government agencies, exploratory surveys, journals, and uh, straight up site investigations. Um, so, you know, often you're taking a small amount of tissue and then upscaling it to the whole organism. Uh, this was across uh, terrestrial and freshwater eco groupings. Um, and Australian uh, values were compared with non-Australian values from the 2013 Wildlife Transfer Database summary tables 
um, using non-parametric uh, man Whitney U tests, uh, two-tailed at uh, p-values 0.01 and 0.05. Um, pretty interesting stuff. Um, they, you know, they had these five terrestrial groups: uh, grasses, shrubs, trees, reptiles, mammals, and six freshwater groups, for which they produced 271 new or revised uh, transfer uh, values for radium lead, polonium, thorium, and uranium. Um, the majority of these uh, values are you know, all submitted to the uh, transfer database for people to compare in the future. Um, there was an acidic tailings retention site that was excluded um, based on being a bit of an outlier, likely due to airborne radioactive dust activity. You know, so for example, thorium was up at eight times uh, of what it was in um, some of the other sites or some of the other uh, you know, uh, tests. Um, I guess, uh, you know, when you've got one of those acidic tailing sites, they, it produces more dust, which the reptiles and mammals then ingest or inhale. Is that, is that due to the acidic nature? Is that something that happens in geomorphology? If you've got an acidic um, tailings retention site? If you've got nothing growing on your tailings, yeah, so whether it's saline or acid or alkaline, yeah, that's a problem. But also tailings dams can be in active use, so it depends where it, it is. So in, um, like if you're in Kalgoorlie and it's very dry, um, and it dries the, out. The tailings dams, you know, dry it in form of salty crust or whatever. Yeah. Then there's dust issues. And but it does depend on this. You know, every site's different. I'm yeah. I'm not a expert in those these aspects. Right. Well, obviously, but, um, this is an outlier. So it, it, yeah. it's not something that they included in the wildlife transfer database. Just but, as a note, the um. The, who, uh, who the, use, can I just ask a question? Who who uses the transfer database? What's it um? Mm -hmm. for? It's a. Is it, I, I guess it's used um, in um, uh, those environmental impact assessments for uh, uh, companies and people looking to do um, naturally occurring resource mining, yeah. uh, radioactive material mining, yeah. um, like and, and like I guess, you know, um, the Atomic Energy Agency's um, subsidiaries around the world. Yeah, so it's like a just a data set, like a reference set. Yeah, exactly. Set. It's, a, it's a big reference set for, mm -hmm. you know, the ratios of... Um, uh, media to the local organisms, mm. so you can probably you know use that as a baseline to see if things are a bit oh, higher yeah. or lower. I think it's, a, um, it's an interesting value anyway. Um, I, I guess it is meant to be that baseline that that you can then compare things to. Mm. I, I, I guess that's the idea. Um, yeah, interesting. Um, the uh, tailings retention site was uh, it's actually it has a higher. Um, concentration ratio from uh, so a higher rate of um, radionuclide radionuclide transfer from media to the whole organism than the Taranaki nuclear test site in South Australia where they used to test um, yeah, right. uh, nuclear weapons. So they had uh, yeah. quite quite a high, a high rate there from that tailings retention site. Obviously, it's an outlier. Mm. Um, marsupial metabolic rates is obviously there's a bit of an issue there. They're about seventy percent that of what mammals are so some of these um you know when they're upscaling these values to whole organism there may be some issues there as well um the the main the main uh you know i guess criticism that i have here is they've got um varanus panoptes um the yellow spotted monitor in here is listed as an aquatic species hmm. um so it you know it may have a slightly higher aquatic diet and and live uh, closer to wetlands but um uh, from one reference, uh, you know, which is actually looking at food items, uh, indigenous food items from specifically the Magella and Cooper Creek areas. So, of course, you're going to have a higher um, amount of aquatic food in their diet than uh, compared to other goannas. It's meant to be 30% more aquatic than uh, uh, eating 30% more aquatic uh, food than the um, sand goanna. 
which is entirely terrestrial in habitat. Now, the yellow spotted monitor, according to, um, uh, you know, if we take the Harold Cogger reptile book, is a large ground dwelling monitor feeding largely on insects and terrestrial vertebrates. So it is pretty much a terrestrial animal. It's also known as the Argus monitor because it does occur, you know, around some wetlands a bit more than the um, sand goanna does, but it occurs all the way through to central Queensland and mm. some very, very arid areas. I guess, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit dubious on uh, listing that as a as a as an aquatic, aquatic. organism. Um, I, they 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 actually did the same thing as well. They they changed uh, it to a uh, a soil based media just so they could compare it to Varanus gaudii, um, just so they could do that comparison um, despite the dietary difference. Mm. Um, and they find that you know uh, the sand goanna gaudii has a you know up to three times higher uh, ratios, but they only have a sample size of one. Mm. So obviously a few issues here. Um, no concentration ratios for marine organisms, phytoplankton, zooplankton, insects and larvae, amphibs, annelids, ferns, fungi, lichens or bryophytes. Um, one of the challenges that I have with this um, study, and I'm not, obviously I haven't read the whole thing, but um, is that uranium uh, up in the Alligator Rivers region of the Northern Territory um, outcrops um, in different locations and so it's been there for millions of years right so when you you've got a mine there obviously there's a concentration of activity and exposure of materials but there's going to be natural um, transfer anyway from the well I also I don't know about uh, I just remember from the aquatic studies so this is not what we're talking about here but the aquatic studies are just saying that the ecosystems were quite used to elevated uranium in the waters yeah like it wasn't um, a problem it wasn't for, for toxicity but it was the salinity that was a really uh, key right. issue, and it was magnesium sulfate was actually the, the toxic element. So when they did aquatic, so this is getting away from this study, but when they're doing uh, toxicity testing on clodosterone and hydra, uh, back then when they're developing the water quality objectives. The were, salinity seemed to be Yeah, the magnesium sulfate was, was what the organisms in the aquatic environments were most sensitive to. Interesting. So because because uranium outcrops, um, like I think it's to do with the fact that you've got elevated uranium upstream, downstream, you know, like before the mine was there, if you know what I mean. Mm. And so when, when a study like this is done, I wonder about um, mobility of animals there. I'm getting out of my depth. I'm not a fauna expert, <laughs> but I think they're all over the place. Okay, so how do you know where they've been, where they've been eating, what they're doing, yeah. you know, where they're moving? I think they're making and, some pretty serious assumptions about their ecology. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I just, just, just questions that came to mind, but. And that was only from uh, learning from the biologist who used to do the tox testing and was just, yeah, I remember they were in that shared the lab with me and um, so over lunch you'd be talking about stuff and then, mm. but it was more the aquatic aspects. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, globally, if we compare the data for the, the uh, Australian transfer data, um, you know, um, Australian... Uh, uh, about 83% of them fall above the regression line. So grasses and mammals significantly, shrubs not. Um, basically, it's a, there seems to be a bit of a higher transfer rate for, for whatever reason, whether that's the uh, slower, um, uh, sorry, uh, slower transfer rate, whether that's the slower metabolism um, of, of marsupials that we were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, either way, it does appear that there needs uh, to be a specific, um, Australian specific transfer data and uh, that understanding of local ecology is so important, mm. right? You completely potentially misrepresented <laughs> one of the mm. a monitor that you find across some very very arid areas of Australia as being an aquatic organism. 
and uh, you know, I just wonder where, um, what kind of uh, what kind of impacts that's going to have for comparison if, uh, mm. for people looking at that naively and going, oh, Varanus panoptes, mm. uh, aquatic organism. I guess we can compare it to other aquatic organisms. Hmm. Are they researchers based in the Northern Territory or somewhere else? Somewhere? I am I don't know. not sure. No, we no have worries. a paper right here. We can have a look. It's okay. Mm. Perth et al. With an invaluable one. Victoria. Published. New hmm. South Wales. We do have somebody in the Northern Territory there. Hmm. No, it's just yeah. interesting. And somebody in the UK. So we got Victoria, New South Wales, Northern Territory in the UK. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. 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 Hmm. Thoughts, Mr. Adrian? Uh, yeah, the, the fact that the, there was only one to compare is, is yeah, I'm surprised that it got published. It's a, yeah. It's not a, um... Well, yeah. well, you know, it, it is a bit of an outlier not there, but... Data uh, no, it's not, really. <laughs> but, I, I mean, like, the, the, the whole uh, 271 new reviews, uh, new or revised uh, whole organism concentration ratios, you know, that's fantastic. Mm. Um, but, um, that's, uh... That Gouldia comparison then with one and uh, yeah. Anyway, otherwise not too bad. Moving on, moving on. Next paper. What do you guys think? I think we're going to go straight to this uh, Kujala at all. Kujala, Kujala. If it's like if it's anything like my name, it's Kujala at all. Twenty fifteen. Um, towards strategic offsetting of biodiversity loss using spatial prioritization concepts and tools. A case study on mining impacts in Australia. This is from Biological Conservation 192. Um, very interesting. So um, offsetting is, you know, very widely used in uh, a lot of this uh, uh, land use planning. Uh, so, you know, you basically got a couple of ideas. Either protect or restore degraded habitat if you've done some damage. Typically done using a like-for-like -like approach. So, for example, if you um, have one hectare uh, of a specific vegetation type destroyed, you have to offset with one hectare of the same vegetation type. Uh, now, there's various levels of complexity and multiple ecological variables in the different types of like-for-like -like approaches. Um, however, there's also some dangers. You know, black box, uh, it's kind of a bit of a black box use of ecological parameters. Um, there's a lack of, uh, I guess, indicators and in monitoring a lot of the time. And sometimes the management objectives can be a bit vague and contextual here. So there's some dangers of ad hoc or rule-based or score-based site selection. It's a bit inefficient and uh, it has been shown to sometimes even fail to protect biodiversity. There's much more efficient ways to do it, um, potentially, and uh, much more effective. Um, well, so say the authors and uh, their answer uh, appears to be systemic, uh, systematic conservation planning uh, coming with the key principles of uh, complementarity and irreplaceability, um, or, which uh, we can also call strategic offsetting. So complementary sites are you know, sites that most effectively add underrepresented biodiversity to the existing network, whereas uh, irreplaceable sites uh, you know, have rare biodiversity features. There's few or no alternatives uh, for offsetting, so they are prioritized for um, uh, retention. So the authors here, um, are I guess uh, exploring, applying the principles of um, complementarity and irreplaceability, um, strategic offsetting. Um, so they looked at the offset options for um, mining impacts on 569 flora and fauna species in Southeast Australia, um, outlining a CI, complementarity and irreplaceability, um, based approach using uh, common modeling and spatial prioritization software. Uh, and then they anticipate uh, the loss uh, from development 
uh, versus the gain from offsetting. Quantify this for each species and then they compare this for the like for like uh, habitat method. Um, so, speaking of methods, uh, area was uh, the lower Hunter Valley, lovely area there in New South Wales. About 430,000 hectares, around 60% of it is native vegetation. Um, many features of national importance, including 17 endangered fauna species, uh, also includes open cut coal mining, manufacturing, tourism, and a lot of agriculture. Current pending uh, and uh, current and pending coal titles cover about 990,500 uh, hectares. It's about 21%, and overlap with areas of high biodiversity value. Um, so, the authors took occurrence data from 569 threatened species. Um, the species distributions were modelled um, uh, using the program MaxEnt against a set of, um, for each species, ecologically relevant environmental variables, so vegetation, climate, topography, soil, things like that. Uh, they remodeled species distributions with the same variables for pre-European vegetation patterns as well. Uh, they went on to compile a vegetation condition layer, uh, so vegetated versus disturbed and various stages in between, I imagine, um, and uh, a mining likelihood layer as well. Um, they then went on to uh, the spatial prioritization of offsets that they wanted to test with six scenarios. So for the uh, CI method, um, three methods where one's 100% protection, 100% restoring, one and in combination, uh, all run in zone nation 4.0. And for the like for like approach, uh, you know, there was a protection uh, only, a restore only, and a random offsetting, uh, all tested in Marxan 2.4. Uh, and uh, they ran all these uh, scenario models and use the data to ID priority areas that satisfied the offsetting scenario. So for example, um, uh, CI sites uh, are sites that res are returning the total uh, proportion of the original distribution of a species that was lost due to development. Like-for-like uh, -like sites are, are trying to meet all of their veg type targets um, and if not, a priority area is a site, a site that meets all the achievable targets plus remaining areas for those veg types for which targets failed. Um, to test cost impacts, they re-ran uh, re um, their CI models assuming costs of restoring are 3 to 10 times higher than protection given the prior condition. Um, very interesting results. Um, you know, if, you, um, if they were to mine all of the coal titles, um, That'd be about 22% of the native vegetation cover in the area lost, including 8% in uh, native protected areas. So there's a pretty direct linear impact on um, species distributions, right? 5% uh, mining is a, a, about a 1.4% loss in species distributions. 100% brings it up to 21.9. Now there's mm. a huge amount of variation in species. Um, the superb live bird, you know, if you, if you uh, on average, if you mine 100%, you lose 21.9%. For the superb lyrebird, it loses around 60% of its distribution. Uh, same for vegetation. There's some that um, some species that will only lose around 0.6%. Um, the red gum rough barked apple forest will lose around up to 88% of its current species distribution. Um, pretty heavy. Um, now, if um, we were going to do apparently the uh, CI offset mining, uh, the CI offset method, um, we'd need anywhere for up to sixty-four thousand and fifty hectares um, 
depending on pressure. Now, I, I, I couldn't find a figure for the like-for-like like on that, though um, figure 4C does show the ratio of offset to mined air, isn't it? Doesn't look great. Um, anyone, uh, anyway, we'll uh, move on to uh, uh, the scenario, the first scenario um, in our strategic offsetting, where we do um, protection only, and we end up losing 22% of total biodiversity. Mm -hmm. um, in scenario two, with restoration only, um, it, it, you know, if we're restoring 100%, um, you know, it's the only way to really restore or improve biodiversity values to pre-development levels, but that depends on restoration success. And um, it comes with a two to two and a half times higher cost. Uh, the combined method obviously brings the cost down to about 1.7 uh, times, two times, uh, and an emphasis on restoration at low mining and protection at high mining pressure. Um, it's very area efficient, the uh, strategic method, whereas uh, the like-for-like -like is very good at low mining pressure. However, after about 10% mining leases are cleared, there's no more space left to restore um, for up to nine plant, for more than nine plant communities. So the uh, uh, yeah, the like-for-like like ends up failing the no-net-loss principle of uh, uh, at intermediate mining, um, you know, with up to 11.3% biodiversity loss potential, whereas the uh, strategic offsets improves biodiversity protection by about 10%, with worst-off species getting about 13.7% more protection. The worst-off species under the like-for-like like actually get 4% um, less protection. Now, there's obviously a lot of limitations here. Variation in species distributions and spatial ecology. Uh, the additionality principle you know, is very interesting. You know, it, it implies that um, if we're going to offset that patch of forest, it, it implies that there was a threat to it. Mm. You know, it's, uh, you know, if, uh, if, I, if I were to knock down a certain bunch of uh, land and, uh, and then offset a bunch of the moon, well, we were never going to knock down trees on the moon anyway, so yeah, that, oh. that can kind of be, a, you know, that additionality principle can, you know, it's threat implicit, which is a bit interesting. Um, now, this is a quote here as well, and uh, I think you might find this very interesting, Adrian. Um, Uncertainty about the success of restoration undermines both strategies equally, right? Yep. So it depends on how well you actually end up doing the restoration of the site. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, obviously you guys try to do your best, but have you seen some poorly restored sites in your time? Or do you, yeah. guys, do you guys end up going to a lot of terribly restored sites and kind of trying to fix them up? Or? Uh, uh, we, we've inherited some, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, my problem with offsetting, I think I was saying this earlier, is that it's it's a great idea because before you had nothing. Yeah. Now at least you said that, you know, you're required to do something. Yeah. Um, but uh, unless you start doing it 30 years before you intend to actually use it, yeah. Um, you, you're not kind of seeing the the, the net gain, like you know, and it, it is assuming that you will achieve that, you know, like for like uh, along the way, which yeah. which rarely happens because. I mean, it, the, the, there's intrinsic value to any site that you can't, you know, replace. So, does does it seem almost um, more sensible to to try to use that complementarity approach? Uh, I mean, like for like seems nice and easy. You've got these measures that you can kind of just plug in and, and go. But 
the the strategic method kind of requires you to know the network of ecosystems that are there and what's already there that mm. you can complement with rather than just blindly matching like for like. Mm. I mean, the, the, the idea of it, like, you know, the overarching uh, regional plan is a great idea. There's been a few kind of that I, I've heard about along the, the years, but um, uh, putting it into practice is another thing. Um, it's the same with, uh, you know, wildlife corridors. They, yeah. they try and plan them. You know that they're, they're a great idea, but they don't necessarily come to, or it, yeah. or it can only take a change of government for, you know, previously protected areas to be completely wiped as well. Right. Um, so how do you get thirty years of protection to get that forest to get to a nice sort of mature stage with hollows and all those other structural features that fauna actually need for it to be yeah, functional? Absolutely. And can't you have setbacks with threatening processes like? fire yeah um, absolutely yeah droughts floods whatever yeah, yeah plenty thing, of stuff those things that really yeah uh, i mean the irreplaceability I, I really like that idea uh, there's i mean that but, you can't but, just do like for like sometimes there's going to be something there that is so unique that you're not going to find it yeah yeah you're not you physically can't offset certain things and sometimes uh, like for like isn't necessarily um i mean uh, that they probably uh factored that in at some point but uh if you have you know you know, an open woodland where you have, you know, 100,000 hectares of reproducing that somewhere else isn't going to achieve as much as going, well, you know, okay, this is, this is all, say, some kind of open woodland, but there's a wetland ecosystem that we have, you know, less than 2% left of. It would be better off to use, you know, find some land where we could reproduce and that would be that complementary method. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we need some more wetland here rather than some more woodland. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, you, you do need to factor in, you know, what you're losing. You know how important it is. Um, yeah. Otherwise, um, yeah, there's no point recreating a woodland that. that <laughs> you already have plenty of already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or, or, or just, you know, growing a monoculture, which is useless for, for, for a lot of fauna. Mm. Um, another quote here that I, uh, I thought was interesting. The like-for-like -like approach struggled to meet targets under moderate to high levels of mining. This raises the question of how unmet targets should be properly and transparently compensated. That was an interesting point to me. When, um, mm. you know, if you do have uh, uh, an obligation to restore something like-for-like... If the company fails that, how do they? Um, first of all, how do we how do we make sure that that's transparently apparent, and then how how is their compensation? For well, that? this this invokes the completion criteria, which I, I don't know if it's the same language in in a non mine restoration, but that's where in mining there's a need to set completion criteria across you know veg soils, and whether it's to do with um, the variety and the yeah the biodiversity and the species composition and cover and the whole you know the whole gamut of characteristics mm. but those completion criteria being set at the start I'd so they were I, I guess would you would have to include in those completion criteria some of the um uh like for if you are going to go the like for like method you have to include some of the uh ecological parameters and indicators that you are using to define yeah. what is like and what is not yeah you'd have to and include those in the in the sorry what was it called yeah completion criteria completion criteria yeah, there you go. yeah that but um yes and some of the challenges are around the soil spoil interface as well where you've got new you know and you dealing with new soils right so you know ph around the, the condition of the soils to make sure that they're matching it but that's where the concept of hybrid ecosystems has come in with um research by uh, david Dolly and others out at um 
UQ, I, I think elsewhere, but that brings to mind that concept that for years there has been this attempt to reproduce or restore ecosystems and it sort of rehab is then kind of because of its um, completely changed substrate, how difficult that's been. So on those areas of bauxite mining or sand mining where you can replace the soil, where it's been more successful to have native ecosystems come back more similar. But uh, in those other areas where you've ended up with something completely different, I think, and, and failures. So, you know, all acacias die at seven years or whatever. So there's plenty of examples of that where good intentions, but no idea, yeah. um, plant a lot of acacias and it looks good for a while. Or have a lot of uh, ground cover or, or, or grow grasses that, you know, only short term or wiped out in the fire and yeah. got nothing. So, mm. or, or it's invasive, like gamba grass in the tropics coming mm. in, yeah. um, rum jungles, victim of, of uh, gamba grass infestation. You can have very dense cover and very stable um, soils and then suddenly fire comes through and it's like a billiard table, <laughs> nothing, yeah, yeah. nothing growing. So. Um, yeah, so completion criteria are challenging, but a lot of ecologists in mine rehab uh, spend a lot of time either developing them for that are site specific or um, trying to achieve them once yeah, they've been set. Yeah, well, in my experience, in terms of the completion criteria, that, that there's not a long term uh, monitoring. Um, mm. uh, most offset sites have, you know, less than five years, and some of them only a couple of years. So, so long as it looks good for the first couple of years, it gets the tick, right. and then that, then yeah, they tend to walk away. What, what kind of well, monitoring do they? That's a good question. I don't have anything to do with offsets, but I wondered then what happens when the mine closes to the offset, or is that have they uh, completed their obligations at that point in time? Who inherits the offset? I don't know anything about offsets. I don't know how they're managed. Mm. But I, my my ever present question is, what happens at closure with that? Mm. You know, how do you? You know, who owns it? even like cultural heritage artifacts that might be found when before a mine get they might be put in a keeping place, but what happens afterwards? You know, yeah, right. like all of these questions that I have that say things that are done at the beginning, the things are done as part of planning, but the tail end is missing. Yeah, mm. uh, so I don't know. Yeah, well, um, most of the offsets that we've worked on are usually on uh, properties that have been acquired for the offset. Um, yeah, but uh, what happens in the long term? I mean, offsets are a relatively new thing, uh, and that, that, that is my concern that, you know, uh, 20 years down the track with, you know, how many changes of government, you can't be sure that that area will be protected, mm. um, yeah, even if it has uh, achieved. I, I haven't heard about many offsets that have exceeded uh, the original target, um, uh, simply because they do the bare minimum um, is one of the other challenges hmm. yeah i guess well I, I look i guess it's one of those things again you need to know the the local ecology and at what stage something is going to be a mature successful ecosystem you know like, like i said brigolo 25 30 years you mm. kind of starting to get to a mature mm. brigolo regrowth system you know that's kind of similar to all the remnant stuff but there's other old growth forests out there that will take a lot longer than that you know? yeah and that's that's part of the completion criteria demonstrating it's sustainable okay mm. so in terms of wildlife, I mean, it's easy to go through and, you know, direct seed. Direct seeding is a lot easier on bare soil um, because you, you can, uh, you need sterile soil in order to get decent results out of uh, direct seeding. Um, otherwise, you, you're just going to be fighting weeds and you'll end up losing most of that seed anyway. But, but in terms of the, the, the wildlife coming back, um, I mean, obviously you can't, you know, 
incubate the eggs well, <laughs> and then you know like i don't know so well, there's a, there's a lot of important features in those like you know termite mounds yeah. cracking soils so, uh, and things like that falling right. over trees all, all of these other features that make it really important yeah, yeah. And, um, the intrinsic value is yeah. really hard yeah. a fauna ecologist friend colleague uh, liz williams uh, she always said that the rehab was designed just for the veg assuming the fauna would come exactly. not designing the ecosystem for the fauna yeah so right it could be this fundamental problem with how we design rehab anyway mm. just assuming that you get grasses and trees and everything will sort itself out whereas yeah. actually you've got to do the well you, you, do, you do need little bandicoots there to ecosystem engineer and yeah. transfer and dig soils yeah. and move seeds around and Mm. And all these, you know, birds that are moving, you know, fruit seeds mm. and, you know, you're going to need pollinators in the area. That's yeah, good. well, know, that's it's a very in, in Germany, they were bringing those things in ahead in the very early stages well, of rehab. They're dumping fauna and, and butterflies were, they, and birds. They and had the beehives. <laughs> they, oh, they brought in yeah. ants' nests. They had the um, big long pole for the birds of prey. Oh, excellent. And they had, they, they were bringing it all in. And I just mm. haven't seen many mines, if any, uh, maybe one. In the Hunter Valley, I saw um, Mangula, I think they tried to introduce some logs. But, you know, we can do better. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, it, it depends on what's adjacent to the site. If you, you know, I've seen offsets that were surrounded by farmland. So in terms of the, the, the fauna recolonizing it. <laughs> yeah, where are they going to come from? Yeah, that's yeah, right. They're, they're if there's no corridors going into it, then the only things that are going to get there will have to be, you know, Mm. slowly moving across the ground or flying there. It's mm. going to take a long time to repopulate and become much fauna value. And that being said, I have seen some excellent koala translocation pro programs, um, yeah, where they um, uh, protected them in some cases. Uh, they had some issues with wild dogs who were pretty much uh, decimating a koala population uh, just north of Brisbane there. Um, and so uh, through the offset, they actually translocated a lot of these koalas there and um yeah the, the population is thriving now so that's fantastic news uh, look the, the more help that southeast queensland koalas get the better because they are struggling guys i think that's uh, about where we're going to have to leave it um, yeah. oh, we've got another research rate there's so much more stuff to talk about we'll have to get you back on sometime again if you're happy to come on again yep no worries adrian Always a joy, my friend. Miss mm -hmm. Karen Onga, oh, it's been you, an absolute me. pleasure. No worries. Um, and I guess that's pretty much it. Guys, plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails coming up in the next couple of weeks. Um, keep your eyes peeled. And uh, yeah, we'll be back shortly. Um, hopefully with uh, some bird conservation featuring Mr. John Wanowski. Um, cheers, guys. It's been a pleasure. Um, all right, have a good one. Thank you. Cheers, y'all. Thank Bye. you.